Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. This week, a California couple learns the hard way that the heat ain't the only killer in Texas, in part three of my Texas Chainsaw Massacre series review with Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Last week, I was pretty down on Hooper's sequel to his sun-scorched masterpiece. I lamented the film's decision to match the horror absurdity of the original with an equally absurd new comedic tone that, while not terrible, resembled little of what I loved about the original. Well, as I found out, the third film in Leatherface's cannibalistic tale reverts to the original's tone, but is it capable of instilling the same level of fear? Directed by Jeff Burr and written by David J. Shaw, Leatherface The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 was released in 1990, four years after Hooper's slasher comedy. The film revolves around a California couple on a road trip through Texas, and after a mishap on an unmarked back road, they inevitably end up in the crosshairs of Leatherface and a new rogues gallery of cannibalistic killers. From the opening moments, it's apparent that Texas Chainsaw 3 is a return to form for the series' dark and gory roots, which truth be told, is all I really wanted out of a sequel. The film opens with Leatherface slicing and stitching himself a new face mask off of a recently carved up corpse in an undisclosed workshop. The sickening and bloody detail of the face itself not only sets the tone, but serves as a strong display of the handiwork of horror special effects master Greg Nicotero's work on the film, which helps drive the movie's nasty and more serious tone home. We don't know exactly how long the film picks up after Texas Chainsaw 2, but we know it occurs within the same Chainsaw cinematic universe as it were. We know this from a brief cameo by Caroline Williams by reprising her role as Stretch from Texas Chainsaw 2, who is upgraded from her DJ booth to becoming a field reporter, reporting on a mass grave being exhumed along a Texas highway. The mass grave is home to between 60 to 70 bodies, all in various stages of decomposition, and while there are no suspects, we, the audience, know the Sawyer's handiwork when we see it. This scene in particular not only does a good job of capturing the absurd horror of the Sawyer clan's depravity, but also, Burr throws in a nice homage to the opening of the original film by replicating the bulb flashing effect and sound when the coroners photograph the bodies. It just so happens that Texas Chainsaw 3's protagonist Michelle, played by Katie Hodge, and Ryan, played by William Butler, are stuck in a traffic jam along the exhuming and are given their first taste of Texas life. Their relationship is contentious to say the least. Michelle is leaving to go to college abroad and Ryan is being a bit of a crybaby about it. In all honesty, these characters feel like they're on the verge of a breakup. This largely results in their being defined by their propensity for arguing, rather than getting a real sense of who they actually are as people. They eventually find themselves at a flea bag auto repair shop run by a highly suspect attendant who can't keep his eyes to himself. A chance encounter with the drifter named Tex, played by none other than Vigo Mortensen, informs them of a secret shortcut that will cut their driving time in half. They reluctantly take his advice only after the attendant brandishes a shotgun and the drifter hangs back to distract him as the couple hastily drives off, certainly not indicative of Texas hospitality. The first half of the film has a very backroads deliverance-esque vibe as Michelle and Ryan encounter the wild whites of Texas, only to then be chased by a souped-up truck that plays a game of cat and mouse with them before lobbing an animal carcass at them, causing them to get a flat tire. It's obviously not a mystery as to who is behind the sudden assault, though I couldn't help but want Burr to allow us to ruminate a bit more in this mysterious backroads tension, which would have been an unexpected evolution to the Texas Chainsaw's somewhat procedural nature. Though, it doesn't take long for old Leatherface to show up sporting his signature saw and goes absolutely apeshit on their car, slashing and smashing it to bits. One thing to note that I appreciate about Leatherface's look is not only his more refined mask, but also his leg brace. 
Minor details, but the character's appearance is reflective of his history, with this being the third film in the series. The leg brace is notable as it's reflective of an injury he sustained in the original film, which causes him to limp, yet he still remains a formidable foe. Again, a minor detail, but it does away with a frequent fault I have with slasher villains whose wardrobe never alters despite the wear and tear they've endured over the course of countless sequels. While Michelle and Ryan survive their initial encounter with Leatherface, they end up crashing their car and rolling down a massive hill. At this point, I should mention that the film is left behind its sun-scorched Texas plains for a heavily wooded forest blanketed by nightfall. This darkness is a change, as Texas Chainsaw differs from most slashers as it mostly occurs during the day, but so long as it leaned into its darker tone, I was still optimistic about this change. Though this turned out to be a double-edged saw, as this darkness does make the cat and mouse game Leatherface plays with the couple more tense, but the darkness is just so damn dark. I hate to use a critique that I absolutely hate to hear be used countless times, but I think it's a matter of the digital transfer of the original negatives of this film, along with improper light coverage, that results in little detail of the woods popping off of the overly dark shoot. It's a shame, because this new nighttime facet could have been far more effective than it was. This woodland chase is important, as we're introduced to a passing-by survivalist, Benny, played by horror alum Ken Faree. After a chance encounter with one of Leatherface's ilk on the road himself, Benny, armed with only a rifle, treks through the woods trying to find Michelle and Ryan. There's also a slight storytelling facet that I wish they had explored more. There's a recurring character who was one of Leatherface's victims who escaped that shows up and taunts Leatherface, distracting him from Benny and the others. It would have been nice to learn more about her or have her serve a more pivotal role in the narrative than simply another piece of meat for Leatherface to hack through, which he does in grisly fashion of skewering her to a tree with his saw. This is the first instance of a kill that is almost instantly cut away from, which leads me into a brief rant about the Motion Picture Association of America, or MPAA, kind of butchering this film. You would have hoped that by the 90s, the MPAA would have eased up just a tad on what constitutes an X-rated film. But alas, Texas Chainsaw 3 would be yet another victim of editing tomfoolery. The film originally received an X rating and had to be submitted 11 times to get it down to an R rating, as more and more content had to be cut. The brief lingering camera shots of kills are gruesome and gory, but they're so brief it feels like they were deliberately edited, which they obviously were. That MPAA intrusiveness is so apparent that it reminded me of their butchering of Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, which they famously gutted of its bloody kills. Now, there is an unrated version of Texas Chainsaw 3, but I wasn't able to obtain a copy of that in time for my review. The ratings board wasn't the only contentious relationship that director Jeff Burr encountered during the course of the film. Burr claims that the studio micromanaged him so much that a strife ensued that resulted in him being fired for not being able to keep up with their high demands. Though, after only two days of being fired, they had to rehire him as they couldn't find another director willing to step in. Both sides made compromises, and they managed to finish the project. This strife is a shame, given that not only Greg Nicotero's talent being somewhat squandered by it, but also Kane Hodder, aka Jason Voorhees himself, was the film's stunt coordinator. And while there are a few squeamish moments, these talents are largely wasted. Despite the overzealous MPAA and studio, we still get a few memorable kills, as just before making it out of the woods, Ryan gets stuck in a bear trap and is sawed to death by Leatherface, while Michelle runs to a nearby house belonging to, you guessed it, the Sawyers. And this is where the film becomes somewhat more interesting, as up until now, it's been a very drawn out and dark and mostly predictable sequel. We learn that, surprise, surprise, Tex set them up, causing them to crash and is actually part of the Sawyer family. We also meet Tex's brother Tinker and Mama Sawyer, 
Grandpa Sawyer, who also makes a return, though he's looking noticeably more dead. And we even meet Leatherface's daughter? Speaking to the darker tone of the movie, it's heavily implied that Leatherface has forced himself onto previous Sawyer victims, thus his daughter is born into their demented way of life. Michelle is given this introduction after being bound and gagged in a chair in the Sawyer's kitchen, but not before Tex nails her hands to the chair, coolly asking, how you like Texas? This is easily the best scene of the film, as it forces the viewer to bask in the seedy and demented world of the Sawyers, a repugnant cast of characters who evoke the cannibalistic morales of Hooper's previous films. As far as performances go, Viggo Mortensen is by far the most impressive as the short-tempered, pretty-boy cannibal brother of Leatherface. His ability to put on a facade as the lonely drifter, only to reveal his devilish butcher ways, comes frighteningly natural to him. This scene also introduces Leatherface's newest toy, that being a massive gold-encrusted chainsaw that says, The Saw is family across its monstrous blade. This saw was also shown in the trailer in a scene that was not part of the actual film, and unfortunately, this film mostly taking place at night stops it from being shown off in all its absurdest glory. There's a pretty steep drop-off after this point, with not only underwhelming deaths, but a lack of logic in its conclusion. For example, Tex and Benny fight only for Benny to light Tex on fire, which eventually blows up Tex's truck. This lacks the hacksaw intimacy of the series and feels like a very Hollywoodized kill. There is also the film's ending, which is quite something. Benny and Leatherface struggle in a swamp, with Leatherface pushing Benny's head into his saw, which buzzes haphazardly in the water. After a screen testing, the studio decided to go back and reshoot the ending. In this new producer ending, the deranged attendant from the beginning of the film survives and attacks Michelle as she flees the Sawyer house. Also, in this new ending, Benny somehow survives and helps her to escape, the film ending with Leatherface slowly walking into frame, brandishing his saw as he watches Michelle and Benny speed off into the sunset together. And the worst part about it? Burr didn't find out about the reshoots until he was watching the film in the theater. He described seeing his film tweaked without his approval as depressing, which I can definitely understand. As a fan, it's depressing to hear of any instance of a creator having their film messed with by a studio, let alone a film that's part of a franchise that I adore. This decision was clearly based off of a general test audience notes, which would largely differ from hardcore genre fans. It's a shame for both the director and fans and the cast and crew alike, and in the end, I think it's pretty telling the overall quality of this sequel. But now it's time for some half-assed research. Actor William Butler, who played Ryan, has a habit of being slain by slasher icons, as he was previously killed by Freddy Krueger in the Freddy's Nightmare TV series and fell prey to Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. He's just missing a Michael Myers kill in that list of notable icons. Leatherface's new gold-encrusted chainsaw had a three-foot blade and weighed a whopping 80 pounds, which just makes the stunt work that Leatherface did in the film that much more impressive. The film was prepped without a director, and Peter Jackson, of all people, was initially tapped to direct, which would be a very interesting choice. I would love to kind of see if he would have stuck with Hooper's kind of comedic elements in the film, or if he would have gone just as dark as the film was intended to go. Apparently, when Viggo Mortensen came into audition, he messed up the rehearsal so bad that they decided to recast him, but then they brought him back after the person that had replaced Viggo Mortensen just did an atrocious job, apparently. And finally, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 was filmed in California because it's cheaper than being filmed in Texas. And they actually filmed it near a theme park. And so in certain scenes when there isn't supposed to be any screaming, apparently you can hear guests screaming briefly in the background. All in all, Leatherface the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, while a messy and predictable sequel, is more in line with the gory and dark roots of the original. 
While the kills are heavily edited, they do a good enough job of re-establishing Leatherface and his ever-expanding fucked-up family as being the despicable embodiment of backwoods horror. I hope that the following film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, will continue with the series rebound horror tone, but won't be nearly as messed with by the MPAA or studio producers. And that'll do it for another episode of Daily Horror Habit. I'll see you guys tomorrow for another Daily Horror Movie Review. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.